Two Cities Church, I've heard it said that it's hard to preach a bad sermon to people that you love. In Two Cities Church, I love you, okay? So if I preach a bad sermon, it's not for that reason. In fact, every time I'm gone, I know I wasn't here last weekend, and every once in a while I'm not here, I'm on vacation, or I'm somewhere else, or I'm being developed, every time, for me, it's never out of sight, out of mind, okay? It's always distance makes the heart grow fonder. That's how I feel. <laughs> Whether it's Pastor Steven or Pastor Caleb, right? Or Pastor Spencer, one of our guests preaching, they always do a great job. I always wish I was here. I love you guys. I'm always reminded how much I love our church every weekend all the conversations before and after service. I'm also reminded of how much I love our church every weekender. We had a weekender this last weekend and what's so exciting, it's all these people and they're just coming into the life of our church and they're gonna be our new brothers and sisters as part of our church family and they've moved here or they found our church and I love all the stories, right? I love the stories of you know people's marriages being reconciled and their families being restored and addictions being broken and mission uh, being put on their hearts. And so very excited about that. And guys, also just wanna tell you this, that when I'm away, oftentimes I'm being developed by other pastors. Here's maybe a new thought for you, but every pastor needs a pastor, right? I need a pastor. And every once in a while I get to go away and I was away uh, two weeks ago with a group of pastors, we were in New York City for the week. It was unbelievably developmental. Got to be led uh, by a guy who's been in New York City doing ministry for 20 years. And I left with one thing. Well, one many things, but one main thing I wanna share. And I wanna bring back to this church and we wanna implement more. And here's what it is. It's not enough to be godly and gifted. Our church is so full. I'm looking around right now, so full of people who are godly and gifted. And so often when we look around, it's like, okay, we need a community group leader. Is there someone who's godly? They have character and they're gifted, they have competence. We need an elder, we need a staff person, we need a church planner, we're looking for the godly and the gifted. We're not gonna stop looking for the godly and gifted. But along with being godly and gifted, how about having power that comes from prayer? How about having a spirit-filled life? How about having a walk with God? And so I'm just taking a moment at the beginning of the service to repent of my prayerlessness in front of you guys and for being a church that doesn't pray like we should and recommitting publicly because I need the accountability to be a person and pastor of prayer. And I wanna start right now by recommitting our lives in this church to being a church of prayer because being godly and being gifted is great, but it's not enough. Let's pray and then let's dive into the gospel of Mark. Lord, we just, we think about Jesus' words. One of his great rebukes when walking into the temple is that your house should be a house of prayer for all nations. Lord, we wanna recommit to being a people of prayer. When the apostle Paul writes to the church, he, he at one point calls the church, those who call on the name of the Lord. Lord, we wanna be a people who call on your name. We wanna be a people who believe that prayer really is the place of power. It's the place of dependence. It's the place of intimacy. Jesus, you yourself said there are certain things that will not come out except by prayer. That means there's certain things that won't happen in marriages apart from prayer. There's certain things that are not gonna happen in our lives, the, kids, uh, the lives of our kids without prayer. There's certain things that are not gonna happen in our families and in our neighborhoods and in our cities without prayer, Lord. So would you give us the desperation and the discipline of prayer, Lord? And would you hold our hand as we become a more prayerful people? And would you show us early and often the power of prayer. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Type two, turn two, swipe two, scroll two, get to Mark nine. Guys, if you're new, we're in the gospel of Mark. Now, 
if you're, you know, I don't know, you're watching online or you stepped in here or someone brought you and you're like, what is the gospel of Mark? It's one of four gospels that we have about the life of Jesus. And what we believe about Jesus is he lived the best life that you can live and he left the greatest legacy that you can leave. Would you like to live a great life? Would you like to leave a great legacy? Well, part of what we're doing here is we're following Jesus and we're helping others find and follow Jesus. And so what we're doing in the gospel of Mark will be in verse 30 is we're watching Jesus, but we're not watching Jesus like, I don't know, some spectator, scholar who's unemotionally involved and just kind of watching from a distance. No, we are watching Jesus in the Gospel of Mark as worshipers. And today we're gonna pick up on the story, right? We're gonna pick up on the story of Jesus. He was on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? He went from the mountain into the mess. How many of you are like, that's my life? <laughs> One mountain into the mess, back up to the mountain, back down to the mess. Um, and we're gonna pick up in verse 30, and we're gonna see he's walking with his disciples. Uh, pick up with me there. Uh, they went on from there, this is Jesus in the 12, and they passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples. Now, this is interesting, I told you before, but you can mark it, <laughs> you can, no pun intended, you can mark it, okay? In Mark chapter nine, that, um, Jesus now spends almost all his time exclusively with the 12 disciples. He's done with the crowds for the most part. He's done with the big debates with the Pharisees for the most part. He's done with the big healing ministry for the most part. He's spending almost all his time with the 12 disciples. And it's because Jesus understood something that I hope we would understand. There's only three things that last forever, God, his word, and the souls of men. Maybe you heard the African proverb. There's an African proverb, not a biblical proverb, but it's still true. An African proverb says this, if, you, if your vision is for one year, plant wheat. And if your vision is for 10 years, we'll plant trees. But if your vision is for a lifetime, you better start planting people and investing there. That's what Jesus does. He dreams big, he starts small, he goes deep with the disciples. And here's another interesting thing, why 12? Well, there's a theological reason to that, obviously. The, the 12 disciples, you know, they're, they're kind of replacing uh, the 12 tribes and it's the new Israel and it's the new people of God, I get all that. But why else? Well, maybe you've heard recently, there's been a lot of talk about something called a circle of sympathy. Ever heard of that? Maybe not. Circle of sympathy is that there's a lot of study right now on sympathy and empathy. And one of the things that they've said is in your circle of sympathy, you can only, the average person can only have nine to 16 people in their circle of sympathy. Your circle of sympathy is people that you actually genuinely care about, right? Here, here's the litmus test for are they in your circle of sympathy? If they died, would you be devastated? I hope your spouse is on your list. <laughs> your mom and dad are gonna be on your list if they're still alive. Your spouse should be on your list. Your kids are gonna be on the list. It's hard to find, right? We may have a couple more after that. These are people that we are going to deeply invest in and we're counting on them and we're connecting our lives to them in a meaningful and strategic and consistent way. Well, that's exactly what Jesus does with these 12. He's investing completely in them to the point where he's, he's not letting other people know that he's doing things or he's in certain places so he can invest more. Now, look what happens here. Let's go to the next verse. Uh, it says in verse 31, we're halfway through here, it says this, saying to them, the son of man, this is what Jesus is teaching, is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise again. So he's teaching the same thing, right? He's teaching about his death, his suffering, his resurrection. Now, if you've been paying attention, two weeks ago when we were in Mark 8 together, he said this exact same thing. In fact, you might go, what, what is he doing? Did he hit, I mean, it wasn't back then, they didn't have this, but did he hit the copy paste function? That he just hit, he got lazy, copy this. I'm just gonna write down the same thing or, and you know, copy it, paste it over here. No, no, no. First of all, a couple things. One, he's reminding them of what's most important. And you know this, as a parent, right? As a, as a teacher, as a mentor, as a coach, uh, half of what you do is teach people new things. 
And, and the other half is just to remind them of everything they already know, but maybe they forgot or they don't realize it's that important, right? This is what parents do, right? As a parent, you feel like, I'm taking crazy pills. All I'm doing is telling my kids the same thing again and again and again. Well, this is what Jesus is doing. He's telling us the most important thing. Now he's talking about the cross. Now, when you look at the cross, you may read this. And in fact, what would be neat is if you look at this, you don't need this now, but if you looked at what he says in chapter nine, and you look at what he says in chapter eight, they're almost identical, almost. In chapter eight, he uses a word I talked about last time. It's the word must. And he, and he talks about the divine necessity of the atonement, that Christ had to go to the cross because sin is that big of a deal. And the only way to pay for it was for Jesus Christ to die in our place for our sins as our substitute. But if you look at chapter nine, he uses a different word that doesn't show up in chapter eight. So he's teaching us something different. Do you see that? It's the word delivered. Now, what does that mean? Well, maybe the question is, who delivered Jesus into the hands of men? He says, Jesus must be delivered into the hands of men. And at one level, I know the answer to that, right? The first answer to that, if you know your Bible at all, it's, it was Judas, right? It was, I mean, one of the 12. We'll get there eventually in the story. He betrays him. He betrays him with a kiss. It was a long plan. He took money. You might say, well, okay, maybe it wasn't just Jesus. Maybe it was Jesus and the religious leaders. It was a larger conspiracy, and then they handed him over, and that would also be true. But there's a deeper answer, right? The deeper answer is if you read all of the Gospel of Mark, and then you read Acts, and then you read Paul's writings, you actually realize it wasn't just that Judas handed him over, the religious leaders handed him over. Ultimately, God handed him over. Can you see the hand of God underneath the hands of men in your life? Now, you may say, well, why did God hand him over? Why did God deliver him? It's like, well, this is the central message of Christianity. He handed him over, he delivered him over to these men so that he could die in our place for our sins, so that he could endure the punishment for our sins in our place. So Jesus is just, I want you to understand this. Everything's gonna flow from Jesus' teaching on the cross. Jesus always teaches about the cross and then teaches a bunch of implications of the cross for our lives. So in the first time we looked at this, two weeks ago, he taught about the cross and he taught about suffering. Today, he's gonna teach about the cross and then teach about service. Well, I'll show you. So now, are the, are the disciples gonna get it? Are they gonna understand? Look at verse 32. But they did not understand the saying and they were afraid to ask. Have you ever not understood something? Some of you are like, this explains my whole high school experience. <laughs> right? Has there ever been something you haven't understood? And all the men are like, Women, yes. What, what do you do when you don't understand something? Well, you see, the problem here is not that they don't understand. That is a problem. But if they didn't understand, they should ask. The problem, do you see it? They don't understand and they don't ask. Now, why don't people ask to understand Christianity better than what Christ said? I think there are three reasons. The first reason that you don't ask is you don't care. I think this is where our culture is. Imagine, I don't know, you could go to Reynolds High School. We could go to Wake Forest University. You could go, I don't know, to some skyscraper in our city and walk around and talk to the people in there and say, hey, would you, you know, be interested in looking at what Jesus said and asking some questions about it and seeing who he is and why he lived and why he died and how important he is? I mean, he is worshiped by two billion people on earth. Would you be willing to you know, give a couple weeks to looking at the teachings of Jesus and asking some questions? Most people probably would be polite because we're still in the South, but their answer is no. And it's usually some version of this isn't relevant. It's not important. I don't care. I don't think I'm gonna find anything. So that's one reason that people don't ask questions. The second reason people don't ask questions is they don't wanna look foolish, right? Like, remember in Algebra 2 when you didn't understand any of it, right? And at the end of the class, the teacher says, hey guys, raise your hand if you have any questions if you don't understand. You're like, I didn't understand any of this, but I am not raising my hand. Because as soon as you raise your hand, you're like, 
I feel foolish. I feel exposed. I feel like my, I feel like the village idiot. I feel like my ignorance is on display. But the third reason that people don't ask questions is the deepest reason. They don't want to know the answer, right? <laughs> you ever been there? I don't want to look there. I don't want to ask my daughter, my teenage daughter, what she's doing. I don't want to talk to my son about what's going on in his room. We don't want to know why. It's called willful blindness. Because we say, we, you know, it's, in our culture, we say, knowledge is power. Well, here's what else knowledge is. Responsibility and accountability. And if I know, then I might have to do something about what I know. So anyway, they, this, this ends. They, they, they don't ask the question, and they go on a walk. And look what happens next. Verse 33. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house... He, this is Jesus, asked them, what are you discussing on the way? Now, it's interesting. They're not going to ask Jesus questions, so he asks them questions. What's interesting about Jesus, and I think this is a helpful note for us to, to see, is Jesus is paying attention to the people in his life. How good are you at paying attention? People who think about this, they say there's a difference between thinking and paying attention. Americans aren't good at either. <laughs> Thinking is I have to actually think about this. I have to tear it apart. I have to make an argument. I have to understand, is this a good idea? Is this a bad idea? I have to think of competing ideas for this. I have to think about this long-term. It's very hard to think. Most people have to talk to other people to think. Uh, but, but the other thing is paying attention. Paying attention is I'm awake and I'm alert and I'm aware and I'm observant. Like, have you ever wondered, I thought about this a lot. Why is it such a big deal to be at a kid's baseball game or a kid's sporting event? Like, you know, you know what I'm talking about? You hear these stories, like, my dad, you know, he was at every game. And you're like, I know that's a big deal, but I don't know why that's a big deal. Or my dad, he just, he was a great guy, but he, he wasn't at my games. What are we, why is that such a big deal? I don't know all the reasons. It's something like this. When you go to your kid's game, you're saying, I'm paying attention to you. It's like, it's, it's, kids will do anything for your attention. It's basically all they want. So Jesus is paying attention, and then he asks questions. And he asks the question, he says, guys, what were you talking about? Now, it's the most ridiculous thing ever. Look at verse 34. You know this is true because it's so ridiculous. Uh, what are you guys talking about? Verse 34. But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who is the greatest. You guys, so silly, right? Because what Jesus has done so far is, he's, well, he talked about I'm the suffering servant, and I got to go to the cross, and I got to die, and I have to be rejected by men. And they're talking about being the greatest. How'd that happen? Well, one answer is, well, yeah, they didn't understand the upside down, inside out nature of the kingdom. I get it. That's, that's true. They didn't understand to be last or to be first, you got to be last. And to save your life, you got to lose it. They didn't understand all that. But there's a more practical reason. Why are they arguing about the greatest? What just happened in the chapter, the beginning of this chapter? Three guys get to hang out with Jesus go up on the mountain of transfiguration and nine are not invited. And that happened. In fact, in fact, it's the second time it happened. If you go back to Mark 5, don't go there now, but Jesus is gonna go in to, to heal Jairus' daughter. And I don't know exactly what the conversation was, but it was something like this. Nine of you stay here, Peter, James, and John, come with me. It's going to happen again in the Garden of Gethsemane. So what, when this happens, I mean, this is the normal human condition, right? It's like, well, why are they chosen? So the nine, maybe they start asking questions, and we don't know for sure, we don't know who's arguing, but maybe the three, they start thinking maybe one of them is better than the other, or all three of them are better than the nine. Guys, this is a conversation. This is, 
this is deep in us, a desire to want to be great, right? All the conversations about the goat, you know what the goat is, right? The greatest of all time, Muhammad Ali gave that as a name for himself. Now people are saying, who's the greatest of all time at golf? Is it Tiger? Is it Jack Nicholas? Who's the greatest of all time at baseball? Who's the greatest of all time at basketball? We're having these conversations. And here's what I see. I see that all of us, just admit it, we all want to be great. You see it with kids, because as you get older, we get better at lying and minimizing things and not knowing ourselves and not admitting our true desires. But when you're a kid, like you talk to a four-year-old girl, what does she want to be? A princess. Like, we better know these things. Disney knows these things, okay? Well, why would you want to be a princess? Well, they can't articulate it at four. They're saying something like, I want to be great. Why does every four or five-year-old boy want to be a police officer and a firefighter? Because they because they're right, it's great. What a great, you save people, you take care of people, I wanna be great like that. What is the obsession with superheroes and Marvel and DC? I wanna be great. Now, when you get older, your kids maybe get a little more sophisticated. My eight-year-old son now, he's moved on from firefighter and, you know, um, and police officer to wanting to be a professional basketball player. Because he sees it, and, and we've already had the conversation, he is committed, if he becomes a professional basketball player, to stay at two cities and to tithe. So we're very excited about this. <laughs> True story, I'm sowing that seed early, early. <laughs> um, so we wanna be great, right? And what, well, here's what's happened, here's how we are. Actually, if you get in a room with somebody and you notice that they're better than you at something, you often then try to find something you're better at them than at. It's called living in the land of er, smarter, richer, funnier. Oh, he makes more money, but we have a better family. He has a better job, but I'm in better shape. We just can't help it. We live in the land of Ur. And Jesus wants to turn this on, the head, on, on, on its head. And, and here, here's the rest of the message. Here's where we're going with the rest of our time. Jesus is gonna tell us this. The greatest life that can be lived is a life in service to others. I, and we know, if you've been in church at any amount of time, you know that's true. We can make the listening noises when we say it but it's very, very hard to live. The greatest life that can be lived is a life in service to others. Now, how do we know this? Jesus lived this life. Has anyone, would anyone wanna say, I've lived a better life than Jesus? No, okay. Um, yeah, Jesus said I, his whole life. In fact, Mark 10, 45 is the theme verse for all of Mark. We'll get there. The son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so Jesus models this life of service. Then, but, Here's another interesting thing. If you, if you meet people, and this is probably true with everybody, but I, it's probably more obvious with really successful people. If you meet really successful people, especially if they're successful and they're like over 50, there's a whole movement, not in the church, there's a whole movement called moving from success to moving for, to significance. And it's mostly targeted at wealthy business guys. And it's a bunch of guys who realize, I've made enough money, I have the position, I have the office, I have my 401k is fine, I've got it all. Something's missing. And the significant part, the world doesn't even know Christ, but they get this by common grace. The significant part is maybe I need to use what I have for other people. Maybe that's, the, maybe that's what the final quarter of my life needs to be. And if you wanna meet a joyful 55, 60-year-old man or woman, it's somebody who has said, maybe my affluence and my influence should be used for other people. Maybe what would make me more excited is to find a bunch of people on their way up and just open as many doors as I can for them. 
and help them go as far as they can, as fast as they can, and nothing, somehow nothing makes me more excited. And so Jesus is gonna know with the time left, he's gonna tell us four things a servant does. The first thing a servant does is a servant serves anybody at any time. That's the heart of a servant. Let me show you. So verse 35, let's go there. And he sat down, by the way, that's that's a posture of authority. He sat down, he called the 12, and he said to them, if anyone will be first, so that's the same as greatest in Jesus' mind, he must be last of all, servant of all. Now you go, nobody wants to be last. Because we're thinking about being last wrong, right? We're thinking about last in our culture. We're thinking about like the kid who was picked, you always knew this kid, right? In elementary school, uh, who got picked last for the dodgeball team. All right, Joe and Sam and Bob and, all right, Tiny Tim, get over here, you know? And we don't celebrate. I mean, why would you celebrate someone who comes in last? You wouldn't do that, right? We have the Valedictorian, but we're like, all right, Val, you know, Sally's the Valedictorian, and then over there, there's Jake. Jake came in dead last, guys, with a D-plus average out of 354 students. Jake, you were number 354. Stand and take a bow. You know, it's like, we don't do that. And it's because it, it, what, I want to say this carefully, uh, Somebody who has to be last, they have no personality, they have no skill set, they're lazy, they have no work ethic. There's no honoring somebody who's last because they're last. I mean, Jesus loves them and we feel sorry for them. And we would like to help them, but that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about somebody who could be first, but chooses to be last. It's a sacrifice in service to others, that's what it is. And actually, if you think about it, it's who you admire. I'm not saying we live this way, but like, who do you admire? You admire the person who you look at them and you go, well, he could use his status for himself, but he doesn't. And he could, she could use her finances completely for herself, but she doesn't. And she could have somebody else do all of that work for her, and she doesn't even need to be in that meeting, but she's in that meeting for the other people. The idea of being last is kind of like, I want to get behind you to encourage you and push you, and I voluntarily, I could be first, and everybody knows it, but I voluntarily and willingly get to the back of the line for the sake of everybody else in the line to go further faster. And Jesus says this, that that a servant is willing to serve, do you see? Servant of all, last of all, servant of all. So what does it mean to serve all? Because guys, we we can't even, we couldn't serve a whole city, there's 250,000 people. We couldn't even serve every person. It would take you years to individually serve every person in our church. There's hundreds of people in our church. So how do you apply a verse that says serve, servant of all? Here's, who, here's how to apply it. You need to serve the person you least want to serve. Who is he? Who is she? Your mother-in-law? It's about to be Thanksgiving. It's about to be Christmas. I know that she's a little different, okay? She doesn't do everything with the kids the way that you would do them with the kids. How about spouses? Can we serve our spouses? It's like, well, you know, it's really hard. Some people's marriages are unbelievably hard. And so many marriages have so many bad memories in them, right? Well, she never, he always, Right? There's the cycle of disrespect and lack of love and disrespect and lack of love and disrespect and lack of love. You break the cycle through service. How about serving your kids? The principle of serving your kids is you go to them because they can't come to you. That's the principle of serving your kids. 
When they get older, it means you visit them and you go to them. When they're young, it means you get on the ground because they can't come to you. You get into their world because they can't engage your world. It's the principle of service. What would it look like if everyone in here decided the one per- there's one person I need to serve? It, maybe it's the person who every time she calls you go, no! Maybe that's the person you need to serve. First thing a servant does is a servant is willing to serve anybody, especially the person they least want to serve. Look what happens next. And he sat down, that's verse 35, verse 36, sorry, and he took a child and put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms. By the way, many people believe this is Peter's kid. He's in Capernaum, where Peter lived. He's in a house, most likely Peter's house. He grabs a kid that this kid feels comfortable enough with Jesus grabbing him, hugging him, and using him as an example. So he knew him. And he said to them, verse 37, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Jesus associates himself with the least and last and lowly of our culture. Children back then were thought very differently than today. We think children are cute. We love them. We get excited to see them. Back then, because of the high child um, uh, mortality rates, uh, they did not get very excited about children until they got much older, until they were able to be a working part of the family. So this is very different because in most religions, it's, you know, God is the God of the powerful and he's the God of the wise and he's the God of the famous and he's the God of the popular. And Jesus says, actually, I'm going to associate myself and connect myself with the least of society. But here's the second thing a servant does. Let's see, verse 38, John's trying to change the subject. John said to him, right, this is what you do when you get uncomfortable when someone's teaching you something or telling you something, you change the subject. John says, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. But, but don't worry. And we try to stop him because he was not following us. And Jesus is about to say in a minute, why were you stopping him? Uh, here, here's the other thing a servant does. A servant has a win-win mentality, not a win-lose mentality. Right? There's something called a zero-sum game. And a zero-sum game is a way of thinking. It's a mentality. And it basically says, if you win, I have to lose. There's not enough. If you win, it's a threat to me, and I've got to lose. Or, in order for me to win, you have to lose. That's the, that's the win-lose mentality. You see it here because what's happening is the disciples, here's what I think happened here. The disciples have this realization, okay, we, among each other, we need to serve each other, and we shouldn't be first among each other. But then they look outside the 12, and they say, but we're, we are better than everybody else, right? This is what's called tribalism. If you want to ruin something, you add an ism to it, right? There's traditionalism, there's tribalism. Do you notice what, what John says? John says, hey, there was this guy and he was casting out a demon. Well, that's a good thing. And he was doing it in your name. Well, that's a good thing. And he says, but he wasn't following us. And Jesus is like, well, was he following me? Oh, yeah, yeah, he was following you. But he wasn't following us. See, what, it's like, what happens with tribalism is we think that the way that we do things, our team, our tribe, our tradition is the best. And we look down on all other nonprofits or churches or parachurch ministries. It's called tribalism. Now, now here's the truth. As a Christian, you need to find a tribe. You need to find a team. You need to find a tradition. You need to say, this is my church. This is my denomination. This is my network. And, and the truth is we can learn a lot from good gospel preaching churches and denominations that are very different than ours, right? So why do we have the charismatics? Because they remind us that the Holy Spirit is alive and well. You ever meet a charismatic? They remind you that God's at work. 
They remind you that, that the Christian life is not static. That God is personal and is still working in people's lives. It's like, thank God for the charismatics. What do we get from the Presbyterians? That we should love God with all of our mind and we should think deeply about God's word. What do we learn historically from the Methodists? They were called the Methodist. We learn the importance of discipline, personal piety, and personal holiness. You learn that historically from the Methodists. What do we learn from the Anglicans? Tradition, awe, reverence, fear of God. What, what do we learn from the Baptists? The importance of mission and that baptism is a big deal. What do we learn from the non-denominationals? Well, a non-denominational church is just a Baptist church with a better website, okay? <laughs> That's it, I just explained all the, yeah. That's it. So we learn the same thing from the non-denom as we learn from the Baptists. Um, the whole point is we need to learn from everyone, guys, because let me show you this. Look, look, look what happens in verse 39, Jesus responds. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him. We rejoice every time darkness is defeated. We rejoice every time the gospel goes forward. We rejoice every time someone receives the help, hope, and healing of Christ. Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterwards speak evil of me. For the one who's not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. This is the heart of collaboration, a win-win mentality as we look at every other church in our city who's a good gospel preaching church. We want them to win. We want people to come to Christ. We think it takes all types of churches to reach all types of people. And I understand my own role is I'm the pastor of a church, that's my primary calling, and then I'm a pastor of the church as a larger calling. Now here's what's happened, if we can kind of tell you the ugly underbelly of the church world, okay? Every industry, every organization, every you know, business has an underbelly, has a negative side to it. What happens in most churches in America is all of the churches in one city are fighting over the small amount of Christians left in that city. And, and, and that's why, interestingly enough, the more secular a city becomes, the more collaborative churches become. It's, it's, it's true. You go to like New York City, you go to Boston, oh man, all the churches are collaborating. It's like, dude, we have, there's like no Christians here. Each of us has like 100 people in our church and we're just like, we help us do evangelism. The closer you get to the Bible Belt, to a southeast, to a city in the southeast, some, to some place in Texas, to certain parts of Southern California, it's churches fighting over the small amount of Christians left in those cities and forgetting about all of the lost people. So the first thing a servant does is the servant is willing to serve anybody, especially the person they least want to serve. The second thing a servant does is a servant has a win-win mentality. We serve a God of an abundance. You don't have to lose for me to win. I don't have to lose for you to win. The third thing a servant does is a servant cares for the next generation. Look at verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones, and that's a child, or you could say by extension, a new believer, whoever causes one of these little ones, children, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone, which weighed 100 pounds, were hung around his neck and were thrown into the sea. Okay, yikes. That's what we should say. Um, I mean, this really happened. This was another way Romans killed people. I mean, they were experts at killing people. Um, I mean, imagine this happening to you. I mean, you're supposed to be shocked. You're like, okay, I don't want this to happen because what would happen is when they throw you off your bridge, your neck breaks. 
And so it's just too heavy to lift already, but you're also paralyzed. And then you drown by suffocation, obviously, at the bottom of the sea. And we should all be repulsed and go, that's the worst. Jesus, why are you, why are you using such a graphic illustration? Because he's explaining something very important. He's saying, that would be better to happen to you than for you to lead a child into sin. Yikes. So I thought about that because, you know, there's, you gotta, it's got to be more sophisticated about sin because sin is, not all sin is the same. Now, all sin is the same in the sense that it dishonors God. All sin is the same in that it will be punished. But not all sin is the same. For example, uh, it's one thing to struggle with unbelief, to have your questions and to do your own spiritual seeking journey and to wrestle with God. It's another thing to be a public atheist who for a living tries to convince other people not to believe in God. So there are, there's only three left. There was what they called the four horsemen of atheism. And they write books. And, and what was interesting is in 2011, I think it was, uh, Christopher Hitchens, who was very famous, wrote tons of books. He dies still claiming atheism on his deathbed. And I was like, I remember when he died and I got the message. I just thought, I hope he repented. You do not want to face the final judgment as somebody who was for your life and for your living leading other people into sin. It's one thing to look at pornography. It's a sin. But you talk to people at different times in their lives, they have this struggle. God frees them from it. They repent of it. It's one thing to look at pornography. It's another thing to create pornography. To be in the pornography industry, to be a pornographer, to create violent, degrading sex that you put on the internet for other people to get addicted and confused. Like Jesus is saying, we save the hottest places in hell for these people. It's one thing, you know, to go to college and to wrestle with your faith. It's another to have professors on the college campus who think it's their job to dismantle an 18 or 19-year-old's faith that their family spent 15, 20 years investing in them. Pastors do this. They knowingly and willingly don't teach things in the Bible that people need to hear. You have a whole set of, you know, these churches, and as soon as, if you see the pride flag, Jesus has taken the lamp out of that church. It's gone. And people are unwilling to say, Jesus died for this. You need to repent of that. Well, everything I mentioned actually isn't the biggest issue of what's happening in our culture today. I mean, there's a lot, all that's terrible and all that's sad and all that we need to be awake and aware of. But the, the most serious thing is what's happening to our children right now. And I, I, I'm not a doomsday person at all. I'm, I'm not given to extremes. I'm actually, I try to be very tempered and try to see things from multiple angles and all of that. But the more I've watched, the more I've talked to other pastors, especially in larger cities and cities where we're heading, you look at what Charlotte is, you look at where Raleigh is, there is a sexual agenda for our children. And I just want to spend a few minutes talking about this because it's a big deal. I want to show you an image of a, a ge the gender unicorn. Have you ever seen this? Now, you look at a picture like that, okay? It's a sexually confused Barney is basically what it is. And you look at it and you go, well, why would, why would they... You look at it and you go, well, why would someone, is this, was this drawn for, to convince me? No. Was this drawn to convince a high schooler? This isn't how you, you don't draw that picture to convince a high schooler. Who was this drawn to convince? 
elementary school students. You can take it down. There's also the gender bread man. Maybe you've heard of him. And what's happening here is that they're going after our kids. So the only good thing we can say about Satan is he's predictable. We know what he does. Here's, here's Satan's strategy from the garden. Isolate and then indoctrinate. I need to isolate Eve from Adam and then indoctrinate her. I need to get people alone and I need to introduce ambiguity into their life. And I believe Satan's great strategy is somehow to separate parents from their children when their children are very young. And then to indoctrinate and introduce ambiguity into their lives. And what's happening with this is, there's many reasons this is happening, okay? But what, what, what the gender unicorn is, right? It's all about, there's confusing, they have categories now that sex is different than gender, which is different than sexuality, and they're all on a spectrum. I heard a story of, there's one elementary school, I think it was in Arizona. First day of second grade, the students go in, instead of names on their desk, there's rainbows. And you're supposed to move your little image on the rainbow where you are that day on the gender fluid spectrum. And then you pick your pronoun based on your gender fluidity of that day. This is second graders. And then you go around the room introducing yourself and talking to one another with your new pronouns. Now, what is this? Theologians talk about truth, lies, and anti-truth. So truth is that which corresponds to reality, right? It's the word of God. Um, Lies is when you slightly deviate from the truth. In fact, you don't want to be a good liar, but if you're a good liar, you know how to like just deviate slightly from the truth. So it's kind of hard to tell, is that true or not true? And then there is what's called anti-truth. And anti-truth is literally the farthest thing from the truth. The exact opposite thing of the truth. And you're talking the most fundamental thing about you and me after we're created in God's image is that we're male and female. It's the second, the number one is God created them in his own image male and female. I don't know what Adam and Eve, I don't know how attractive they were. I don't know how tall they were. I don't know how much they weighed. I don't know their ethnicity. I know they were male and female. That's all I need to know. We live in a culture right now that's trying to confuse our children about their sexuality. And I I think what's behind a lot of it is pornography. It's decades of people soaking their mind in weird, sexual, demented fantasies online watching way too much pornography, watching a bunch of people, both their, their gender and the opposite gender, have sex with each other, and it messes with their mind. So the guy behind the unicorn and the gender bread man is a guy named Foucault. Look him up sometime. He was a pedophile. He died of AIDS. He is their founder. So if you ever talk to someone who's interested, oh, the, no, the gender unicorn thing is a good thing. Can I just tell you who the founder is? A pedophile who died of AIDS. His name is Foucault. This is why we are as committed as ever to our kids' ministry, to our student ministry, to coming alongside our kids, and to giving them a more compelling vision and telling them a better story. Thank you for your generosity here. Because, yeah, thanks, yeah. Thank you for your generosity because what we're doing here, guys, is this new building. Is, is going to be a home and hub for our student ministry. And it is going to, I mean, I, this word's been hijacked, but it's going to be a safe place. And I mean that in the biblical sense of the word. 
It's going to be a place where we're going to walk with people and we are going to help to reorient their lives if they've been taught lies. And we have an incredible student ministry and we've got a lot of people working very, very hard. And so thank you those who, you who volunteer in our kids' ministry and our student ministry. This is a battle. This is what it means to serve. We are going to fight the battles our kids can't fight. They're not ready to be sent out into war, so we're going to have to fight the wars for them. The third thing a servant does, or sorry, the first thing a servant does, serves anybody, especially the person you don't want to serve. Second thing a servant does is a servant has a win-win mentality, not a win-lose mentality. Third thing, a servant is willing to fight the battles for the next generation. Finally, a servant serves his or her future self. Did you ever think that you are, have you ever, have you ever had this thought, you're a community across time? You know, there's like, you can look to your past, and you're like, oh yeah, there was 12-year-old me, and there was 22-year-old me, and now there's 35-year-old me. It's like, I'm a community across time. And so what you want to do, the principle uh, that Jesus gives us is you need to think of your future self and you need to make decisions today that your future self is going to be happy about. And he's not talking about five or 10 years from now. He's going to talk about hell. He's talking about 500 years from now. Look, look what he says. These, these are the hardest words that Jesus says, even harder than the millstone. Here's what he says in verse 43. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown to hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown to hell. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus ends by talking about hell. Now, if Jesus didn't talk about hell, I don't think we'd believe in it. If it was just in the Old Testament, we'd say, well, New Testament and New Covenant and grace and if it was just in Paul's epistles or Peter's epistles, we'd probably be like, well, you know, I don't know, maybe we can reinterpret this, but it's, it comes out of the mouth of Jesus. Jesus talks about hell more than he talks about heaven. Um, Jesus talks about hell not as a place you want to go. It's not talked about like as an all-inclusive resort. In fact, the word he uses is Gehenna. Now, this is interesting. In, in Israel's history, they had a really dark moment. And just for a small season, they practiced child sacrifice. This was a long time in the Old Testament. And uh, it was such a, they were influenced by their culture. It was such a dark time that, I can't remember what king it was, but one of the good kings in the Old Testament comes around and he fixes up all of Israel. And he gets to where they did child sacrifice and he basically says, this cannot be redeemed. Turn it into a trash heap. And so what it became is it became a place where they took their trash and they burned their trash, right? So we, we, we have a very modern life where we're like, I don't know where my trash goes. I put it out Wednesday, they take it away. <laughs> the bin's empty, it's amazing. Well, back then, they had to take all their trash. So this is, everybody's familiar with what Gehenna is because they took their trash there. And they, it, it was always on fire because there was always new trash happening. And the way they got rid of their trash was burning it. So the smells and the images of Gehenna would be there. Jesus says what you need to do is you need to, you need to think about your future self, not just where you're going to be in five years, but where you're going to be in 500 years. And you need to make decisions today for that future self. Now, here's the temptation what you want now versus what you want most. Why do you give back into sin? Because he was gone and it was late and just for that one time, you wanted to choose what you wanted now versus what the best part of you wanted most. And so Jesus says, he says, tear your eye out. He says, cut your hand off. He says, cut your foot off. Why? Your eye's what you see, your hand's what you do, your foot's where you go. He says, in your life, there's some things you're going to have to cut off and throw away. And why your foot, why your hand, why your eye? Deuteronomy 14 says, don't self-mutilate. He's not actually telling us to do that. We know that. He's going to, but he's, what he's telling you is, 
it's going to be as painful as that to you. And you're, it's going to be something that you love and something you don't want to get rid of. And you're going to need to cut it off and you're going to need to throw it away. Here's what we call this in counseling, extreme measures. So we, this will help us all be better counselors. The number one thing you do if somebody is struggling with a sin, after you make sure everybody's safe, that's number one. The, 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 the next thing you do is you say, okay, time to take extreme measures. No more iPad for you. No more internet at your house. No more traveling. Your girlfriend is now an ex-girlfriend. No more alcohol in the house ever. And you have to do the extreme measures because the extreme measures, they leave the space to do everything else. Oh, thank God, okay, now I need to meet with a counselor and now I need accountability and now I need to pray and now I need to confess and now I need scripture memory. Now I need to go to AA. Okay, great, but the first thing you do is you take extreme measures. This is what Jesus has for us. He says, if you want to, if you're really gonna believe that the greatest life that can be lived is a life in service to others, then you gotta do these four things. And here's my question. What would it look like if we all did this? What would it look like if everybody left here today and texted someone and just, that they need to serve and just made a plan to serve the person in their life they least wanna serve? And then what if this, every marriage and every family, and maybe it's just in your own mind as you walk into work, you think your coworkers, you think your classmates, you go, no more win-lose mentality here. I, I wanna have a win-win mentality. For some of you, it's gonna be, man, I need to actually, I need to start inviting some people into my parenting because I don't know what's going on in my kids' lives and I'm not sure how to stop it. What's the right, when do they get a phone? When do they get an iPad? Do they get that? What, what are the problems and pressures that, that, that middle schoolers are going through? I need to be more aware of these things so I, can, I can't protect something I don't know about. And then each of us just needs to decide, okay, I need to start deciding that I want to do <laughs> what I want most versus what I want right this moment. It's hard to talk about greatness. It's hard to explain it. It's hard to articulate it. So I want to show you a painting. This is a painting that came out in 1883. If you can't see it real well on the screen, you can Google it later and look at it. It's called The Missionary's Adventure. It was painted as a critique on the church at the time. What's happening in the picture is a missionary. See that guy in the middle? He's, in a, he's dressed in black. He's come to talk about the need to serve the nations. He's come back and he's, if, you, if you can look at his hand, he's showing the scars from his service to the nations. And all around him are professional ministers who have become worldly. And they're sitting in a really, really big house. And they're doing two things. They're not paying attention to the missionary. You can see the two guys on the couch are just sitting there bored. Two, two guys behind are laughing at each other about some joke, telling something else. The other guy's staring at his coffee cup. They don't realize they have completely forgotten the mission. And then what's interesting is this is a painting that has a painting within it. And the painting within that is actually a very famous painting. It's called The Crucifixion and Martyrdom of St. Bartholomew. And it's been a moving and motivating picture for generations that the church should serve. And everybody's backs to it and no one's looking at it. The great fear is as a church is fruitful and as a nation is successful, we start looking like the two guys sitting in red on the couch. And we forget that if you want a picture of greatness, it's the guy in the middle talking about mission, showing the scars of his suffering. Let's not forget that, let's pray. 
Lord, I pray that picture over us, Lord, just that that image would be imprinted on our minds. As a nation prospers or as a family prospers, it's so easy to begin to live in comfort and ease and somehow, like the men in that picture, make Christianity all about them and how great they are and how they've arrived. And really the great person in that picture is the the missionary with no name who has suffered for Christ, who's trying to remind the people of what true greatness is and true service is. Lord, would you remind us this morning afresh that the greatest life that can be lived is a life in service to others. We ask this in Jesus' name.